morning. I'm Derek Lane, and my wife's Lindsay. This is our oldest daughter, Alyssa. We also have um, Ava, Audrey, and Owen. Several years ago, Alyssa decided to accept Jesus, and she's here today to make the profession public. So I just have a few questions I want to ask her. Alyssa, have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Without Christ, do you have any hope of salvation? Alyssa, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in Christ. Raised, walked, and in this life. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this awesome opportunity uh, and this blessing to as a father to be able to baptize Alyssa today. I just pray that you continue to grow her faith and pray that you equip me and Lindsay as parents, that Alyssa could be an example to her, her older, I mean, to her siblings, and that uh, we can show Christ in all that, we, all that we do. I just pray this morning as a church um, that, it would be, that our time together will be fruitful I pray for our eyes to be open, our hearts to be open to the, to the word. I pray that you be with Ben as he delivers the sweet truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. God, this morning, in these next few minutes, we want to uh, just slow down. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'll find us walking at three miles an hour this morning. I pray that, um, that you'll give us uh, insight into our pace and into uh, the pace at which oneness is maintained and that you'll find uh, lives that are changed and uh, throttled back as a result. Lord, I pray for clarity and I pray for the Spirit to be at work. Pray for an attentiveness that is uh, beyond us. Lord, also this morning I want to pray for uh, one, of our, one of our folks who is uh, in harm's way. I want to pray for Jonathan Hunter. Uh, Lord, I pray for this young Marine. I pray for his faith. I pray for his aroma and his worship as he's deployed. Lord, I pray that he's stepping out in harm's way, that he is... Salty, bright, and aromatic that others see uh, consistent and vibrant and rich um, hope and trust and peace. Lord, we do pray for his safety. That's, that's a given. Uh, but more than that, we pray for your will to be done. We pray that the gospel will be on display. And uh, whatever that means for Jonathan, we, we, um, we ask for that thankful for the opportunity to walk with Jonathan. I pray that we can keep him in front of us. Um, we can keep him, in, keep him in front of you in prayer. And um, we do confess that the desire of our heart is that you bring him home safe and sound. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We've been in John chapter 17 uh, looking at something called oneness. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll explain to you why we're going there.
John chapter 17 is a prayer. I feel like it's, it's one of the most, um, I mean, all scriptures breathed out by God, but it, I feel like it's a pretty special chapter in our Bible because it's a sort of a one-way conversation between God the Son and God the Father. And not just, not only is it a special insight into hearing a conversation between God the Son and God the Father, but the timing of it, hours before he's arrested, maybe moments before he's arrested, hours before he's crucified, tells me and should tell us that it is really an important chapter. So we've been kind of swimming the ocean of John chapter 17 in the last few weeks. And the journey that we've gone on there, has, or the design has been that we would engage the five petitions or five requests of the prayer. It's not the only way to swim that ocean, but it's how we've decided to do it. And what we found in those five requests is that there, where we've been is, is the fourth request. What we've realized is the fourth request where Jesus is praying not only for his 11 disciples, but praying for those who would, will believe through their work and their word, that would be us, that we would be one. What we realize is that fourth request also connects with the second request where he's praying for protection in the Father's name and from Satan so that they may be one. So this thing called oneness that's just sort of novel to me, really, honestly, not something that we talk about very often unless you go to a wedding or something like that, um, is so important that it made two of the final five requests that Christ had with his Father on the eve of his cross. So we, as a church, have really kind of slowed down and said, okay, let's really look, what this, look at what this thing is called oneness. We've realized in these last couple of weeks that it is seriously, seriously important. We also realized in the last couple of weeks is that it does something. It's not just oneness for the sake of harmony or peace, but it actually achieves something. What Christ is praying for is not what Rodney King longed for, that we just all just get along. But it had a motive and a purpose. And what we considered these last couple of weeks is that purpose and motive is that, first of all, is that we would display God's character. That a bunch of individuals would come together, and in the way we interact with each other and with our God, that we would display the character of our God in three persons as one. So first of all, oneness has a purpose of putting God on display and his character as three in one. Second of all, we found that of what it does is that it helps the world believe and know that the Father sent the Son. That's pretty huge. I mean, people spend lots of time trying to figure out how we can convince the world that the Son is who he says he is. I mean, evangelism programs, outreach ministries, missions work oftentimes. That's the focus. Man, that's what we want. We want people to know that Jesus is God's Son, that he wasn't just a, a teacher, but he's the teacher, capital T. And what we found is, is that oneness does that. When the people of God are part of each other's lives in this interpenetrating, interinvolved way that we described as a dance, that it puts not only the nature of God on display, but it helps the world believe and know that the Father sent the Son. And then probably the most shocking reality of oneness is that it helps the world know 
that God loves his people as he loves his own son. Now, just let that hit you for a minute. I mean, that, that's, first of all, it's got to be a scandalous message for you that God loves you like he loves his own son. I'm talking about you, and I'm talking about me, that he loves us. Feeble, frail, failing, unpredictable, inconsistent critters. As much as he loves his own son, that's scandalous in and of itself. But then think about the reality that oneness convinces the world of that. Then you're like, oh, now that's good. That's good stuff. What we realized these last couple of weeks too, especially last week, is that oneness has a bullseye on it. And that Satan hates it because he likes to mess with important things. And oneness is so important to putting the nature of God on display, to helping the world know and believe that God the Father sent the Son, and to helping the world know what God's love looks like as he loves his people, as he loves his own Son, that you better bet Satan's going to mess with that. That he's on the offensive. That he's like a prowling, roaring lion looking for individuals and churches and families to devour because he wants to mess with this important thing called oneness. He hates it. That's what we've considered these last few weeks. But this morning what we're going to do is we're really going to consider having kind of established the importance of it. We're going to consider how do we go about it. I mean, I think hopefully, if you've been paying attention these last few weeks, you're like, okay, this is serious. This is something I want to be about. But how do we do it? That's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to go to what I would say is one of the other high water marks in our Bibles on oneness in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Really, the whole book of Ephesians. Let me give you some context first. The whole book of Ephesians is about oneness. It's about the church. I mean, if you want to know what the church is, if you want to have one book that you could go to to understand the church, no one book is going to do it because the whole council explains it. But if you want to go to one book to really kind of have a focused study on the church, the book of Ephesians is about that. And ironically, it's also about oneness. The book of Ephesians is written to a bunch of Jews and Gentiles. Now, it's hard for us to really understand what that means, but I'm hopefully going to escort us into that a little bit. I'll tell you right up front that a bunch of Jews and Gentiles sitting and spending time together is an unlikely combination. Seriously unlikely. There couldn't be two more different groups of people than Jews and Gentiles. It would be like a church with the Hatfields and McCoys. I watched um, <clears throat> yesterday afternoon, I think it was just God's sovereignty that this was on, my, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's crazy. It's such a beautiful day, but I, uh, this came on and I, couldn't not, I could not watch it. Double negative for emphasis. I couldn't not watch it. Remember the Titans? Greatness. Great movie. I grew up in an age when black folks and white folks didn't hang out together. I grew up in a time where they ate in different places. We ate in different places, drank from different fountains, and didn't mix. And I think that's why that movie is such an awesome movie to me. 
But I think about Hatfields and McCoys pitted against each other. I think about blacks and whites pitted against each other. And that just gives us a little bitty taste of what it must have been like for Jews and Gentiles. I think about the most difficult marriage where a man and woman are looking at each other going, I'm from Mars and you're from Venus. I can't even figure you out. I don't even know how you think. And I'm going, this book has good news for you. Because it's about Jews and Gentiles, Hatfields and McCoys, blacks and whites, men and women. Put two unlikely combinations of people together and this brings them to oneness. It is an awesome book on oneness. Thinking about the relationship between Jew and Gentile, if somebody that you knew, somebody that you like worshiped with corporately, we'll just kind of use old-fashioned terminology, somebody you went to church with, if somebody you went to church with thought you vile and unclean and actually washed their hands if they bumped into you, would that make it hard to hang with them? I mean, really, think about it. That's the relationship between Jew and Gentile. First of all, Jews thought them that unclean and vile. And second of all, Greeks were thought, or Gentiles were thought of that way. I mean, imagine how you'd feel. This book is about oneness between those sorts of people. That two groups, those two groups of people. We're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1, but I'm going to go back and grab something on the second word to help give us some context on this book and where we're reading. Paul says, I therefore. Therefore, I've learned to pay attention to therefores to try and understand why they're um, there. And therefore points back to a passage in chapter 2. And I want you to look back. Before before we really get into chapter 4, we're going to look back and grab some of the goods from chapter 2 so that we understand what Paul's talking about in chapter 4. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. Now remember, this book is written to Jews and Gentiles who are in the same church. And you, this is speaking to the Gentiles, you Gentiles were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. You Gentiles, before Christ, you were pagans, you were idolaters, you were worshipers of all things, not God. You served yourself. You didn't serve the living God, your creator. And then Paul says, among whom we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, we being Jews. You Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and we all once lived according to the passion of our flesh. So Jew and Gentile, we both were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's describing the situation for both Jew and Gentile. And then the sweetest two words in our Bible... But God, the sweetest, I mean, I cherish him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us. Watch that word, us. Even when we, Jew and Gentile, were dead in our trespasses, he made us, Jews and Gentiles, alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us, Jews and Gentiles, with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. One of the the best things you can do for understanding your New Testament 
is to read the epistles in terms of Jews and Gentiles being brought together as one. It's all over our New Testament. We don't read it that way because we're a bunch of Westerners and we haven't climbed into the context. But when you do and you see this thing that Jesus is saying or that, that Paul is saying that Jesus has done, then you start to see two unlikely people brought together and then you see the miracle of the cross. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man would, may boast. For we, Jews and Gentiles, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. <clears throat> Let's keep going. Therefore, <clears throat> Paul's building on what he just said. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you guys were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our Jew and Gentile peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile one. I've never read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in terms of Jew and Gentile until this, this morning in preaching it. Do you see the connection? Jew and Gentile being made one. He himself is our peace who's made us both one, and he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. That could be translated one new humanity, one new people. That people and humanity is called the church. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. We've had some sweet looks at oneness, and I hope you're seeing what produced oneness right here through the cross. With the most unlikely combination of people that the world could manufacture, Jew and Gentile. Oneness through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, this is what Paul is referring to in chapter 4 when he says, therefore. Now, having those goods, let's go back to chapter 4. <clears throat> I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain that which was earned on the cross that he's just referred to in chapter 2. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is, first of all, pointing them back when he says, therefore, in chapter 4. He's pointing them back to the fact that they were all dead, Jew and Gentile. They were all just as desperate. In the eyes of the world, the Jew might look like he's a little more tidy. 
But the Jews' lot was just as wrath due as the Gentile. Paul says, you're all dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. He takes them back to that reality. He takes them back to the reality that he made both into one new humanity. In himself, he created one new humanity, and that is the church. And then in chapter 4, he urges a church full of people who aren't supposed to be together to walk in what Christ earned on Calvary. In chapter 4, he's teaching people, really, with two left feet, how to dance. He's teaching people improbable, unlikely, the worst combination of people you can muster to dance. And I'll tell you right now, I'm going to prepare you for it. It's not fancy, and it's not quick, and it's not easy, but it's good. That's where we're going to go in these next few minutes. He appeals to, I want to point out, to the oneness of God. He appeals to the oneness of God as he takes him to this. Now, for the nuts and bolts are the how to dance. Let's look in verse 1. <clears throat> Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. I told you it's not going to be flashy. And walking is not flashy. Walking is such an easy verb to miss, but it is the key verb in this passage. It is the key to walking or to being involved in oneness that it is at a walk. First of all, consider that oneness was earned at a walk. Christ could have showed up right now. You ever thought about that? Galatians 4.4 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And if you look at it now, I'm going, well... Why not this be the fullness of time? He could have shown up and had millions of people as followers on Twitter. He could have tweeted the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You pull out your phone. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Put it in my pocket. A little while later. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Oh, yes. I love Jesus. Seriously, he could have had YouTube sermons that could have reached millions of people, yet he showed up at three miles an hour and walked with 12 knuckleheads. Walked. This word is so easy to miss, but I think it's the key to oneness. For oneness is not maintained at 70 miles an hour. It wasn't earned at 70. It was earned at three miles an hour. And what I would say is really, and frankly, a pretty short little life. In a pretty unimpressive location, among an unimpressive people. Walking with tax collectors and fishermen and sinners. Oneness was earned at three miles an hour. And oneness is to be maintained. And that's the key word. At three miles an hour. <clears throat> Christy's doing a little project with Daniel, or she was going to do it this last week. It hadn't materialized yet. It's going to happen this next week, hopefully, building a, making a pinata. And uh, so she sent me off to get the goods, starch, and a newspaper. I was like, man, a newspaper. It's going to be nostalgic. I pulled it out and started reading it. And it was cool. I couldn't figure out how to get to the next articles. I'm just trying to click something. But I found that you turn the page and there's more. And it's awesome. And I, 
So I pulled this thing out, this paper thing, and, and I'm reading it. And there's an article in there about this family that I don't think his family's unique. They just picked this family to do an article on where they're communicating in acronyms. LOL. You know, somebody says something funny. LOL. I-M-H-O, blah. In my, Christy, I said that the other day to somebody. Christy said, what is that? In my humble opinion, blah. Oh, I'm just hanging out with my BFF. I mean, they have all these acronyms that they're communicating with OMG when they're really shocked about something. And this family, what this article is doing, it's not pointing out this family is unique. It was basically saying that language is taking on a new shape. The language is changing to catch up with our pace. That our speed with which we live now is so fast that we have to communicate in acronyms. We have to communicate in tweets and status updates and little sound blurs because it's too fast for a conversation. You know the guy in your life that wants to have a conversation and you're like, bro, man, I'm busy doing a status update. Come on. I got some tweets I need to get to. I don't have time for a combo. Right? That, was, that just came to me. That's not in my notes. <laughs> I don't have time for a convo. Man, language is totally changing right before us because our pace is 70 plus. But yet, walkness, uh, oneness was earned and it is maintained at three miles an hour. This occurred to me this last week. When I was in high school, I remember in my English class where our English teacher taught us about haiku. We had like a little poetry section, you know. And I remember how relieved I was when we got to haiku because I'm like, haiku, man, that is a, that's a lazy man's poetry right there. I like haiku. It's three lines of five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables, I can do that. I love haiku. And what I realize, I'm thinking, now you English teachers are probably going, man, haiku's not that easy. But I'm thinking in terms of big poetry with like books and adjectives and flowery language and imagery, haiku seems just like a little lame shortcut. And I'm afraid that our language and our relationships as a result and our pace have become sort of haiku. And oneness doesn't happen in haiku pace. Oneness happens at three miles an hour with adjectives and time and long talks. Man, I'm thinking about flying at 70 just doesn't work. These things just are a must when life is so fast-paced. I've realized, man, something that's convicted me in preparing this sermon and working up to the sermon is that we're called to a walk. Oneness is at three miles an hour. It's a walking pace. So what that means is I have to say no to some things. What that means is I have to be worse at getting back with y'all on a text message or a phone call. Sorry. Don't try and Facebook me. I, I got off Facebook last night. I was so convicted about it. Now don't all of you go, oh, Facebook is sinful. <laughs> I'm not saying that. For me, it's not quality communication. In two years of being on Facebook, it's frustrated me far more than it's blessed me. (laughs) 
I would rather have a conversation with one dude now than status update 500 people where they don't, I don't get to hear back from them. They just hear from me. That's my conviction. I'm just telling you, right now, things are changing for me. I'd rather drink coffee with one person on one morning in a week and have a quality time of communication with somebody than text 800 and just send out this little soundbite and not have a quality interaction because I, I fear that walking happens at three miles an hour and I haven't been walking. I've been too busy to walk. I'd rather talk face to face in light of this morning's message. I want to eat food with you. Seriously. I want to eat because it's over meals where you get to know people. It's over meals where you talk about, man, this sure is good. Oh, I want to get that recipe. Or who cooked this? Ben, you're a great cook. <laughs> it's over meals that we brag about the food. It's over meals that we find out what's going on in each other's lives. It's over meals that people are wiping food out of the corner of their mouths. And it's, it's in the flesh. It's with each other. It's three miles an hour. Eating food together is the epitome of three miles an hour. I'd rather eat food with a couple people over the course of the week than status update hundreds and never really engage, never really interact, and never really walk in oneness. I'd rather spend a couple hours reading the story of redemption with no view to teaching or preaching. That's what Ben McGraw needs right now, personally. I need time with my God where I'm not preparing to teach or preach because he's worth enjoying. Because I've slowed down enough to enjoy him. Three miles an hour. I need to turn my phone off for periods of a time. I need to spend time reading with my family. I need to go on walks with my wife. Where we don't bring our iPhones. Christy got an iPhone a couple weeks ago. And I noticed the frequency in which we both have our iPhone. And we're sitting, checking stuff, communicating with other people. I'm like, wait a second, it's just us. Let's throw them in the toilet. Let's not let those things destroy oneness. Oneness doesn't happen at 70. I love my iPhone, I do. But I'm telling you what, I fear it's damaging, in my case, to oneness. Because oneness happens at three miles an hour. iPhone is like 70. I think that's why I love it so much. There are four modifiers in this passage to walking. <clears throat> They're in verse 2. First of all, it is a walk. Oneness happens at walking pace. <clears throat> it was earned at walking pace. It's maintained at walking pace. Verse 2, these modifiers help us understand how the walk unfolds. You can bring down, escort down the word walk from verse 1. Walk with all humility. Walk with all gentleness, walk with all patience, and walk bearing with one another in love. <clears throat> I told you it wasn't going to be fancy, and that's all there is. That's all Paul offers right there is these four modifiers of this unimpressive thing called walk. The first one, to walk in all humility. The word humility means lowliness of mind. It is a humble recognition of the worth and value of other people. 
flip the page over a couple pages to Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 3. <clears throat> Paul is writing on humility here to the Philippian church. And he tells them, he says, which would be another group of people united by the work of the cross. There are going to be Jews and Gentiles mixed in the Philippian church as well. All right, Jews and Gentiles made one. Y'all do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's a great definition of humility. Counting others as more significant than yourselves. In verse 8, Paul appeals to the humility of Christ as the model. He says, In being found in human form, this would be Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thinking about how Jesus humbled himself, he humbled himself, himself first of all, by showing up. By taking on flesh. He condescended just to take on flesh. He humbled himself by walking. He didn't have to show up in the age that he showed up in. And he humbled himself by walking with unlikelies, knuckleheads, fishermen, tax collectors, sinners. And he humbled himself unto death. When I really think about it, think about his condescension. I'm thinking about what he did in his humbling. Is he condescended so far that it's hard for me to imagine how I can't condescend this much when he's condescended this far. And when this far, this imagery that I'm using with my hands, this illustrates infinite condescension for him to take on flesh alone, much less to take on flesh when he took on flesh and how he took on flesh and what he ultimately did in the cross. And yet I have a difficult time condescending this much to someone else. Paul is calling us here to walk in oneness with all humility. Our condescension is microscopic, even if you are to condescend to what you perceive as the most lowly. It's been a couple of years ago now that we studied um, in what we called the He Stinketh series. And one of the sermons that we had there, a couple of sermons that we had there were dealt with humility. And dealt with us viewing and having an, an aroma of our own, the stench of our own death. And realizing that Lazarus stinketh, four days dead, is an image of our own condition. And I remember studying Charles Simeon, a guy that um, I feel like is a model in humility. And Charles Simeon defined humility as not, um, not something outside of yourself, but in, in, actually involved with yourself, that it is an accurate view of who you really are. That's humility. And that's what Paul is calling the people to walk in here. To walk in a lowliness of mind, recognizing worth and value of other people, even more value in other people than yourselves. I just stopped for a second. Just that one modifier. Can you imagine that people? Can you imagine a people who really are part of each other on a weekly basis who consider others as more important than themselves? I mean, seriously. Who needs evangelism uh, programs? 
Who needs schemes to reach our community? That's scandalous enough. For people who really consider others and their needs and their crises and their celebrations is more important than their own? Seriously, think about that. That is a scandalous people. And that's what we're called to, to walk in oneness. To walk in humility. All humility. Secondly, we're called to walk with all gentleness. Gentleness in your translation, you might have the word meekness. I like meekness because meekness is a better word that helps connect to what this is really talking about here. Meekness is defined as the gentleness of the strong. It's not a synonym with weakness. You see that? Don't walk as a bunch of weaklings. Walk as a bunch of people who are strong but gentle. It's a gentleness of the strong. Man, as I read that, I long for this because I have been harsh at times with this church as I've been harsh with my family. And sometimes I'm just amazed that there's anybody even still here. Honestly. We're called to walk in all gentleness. I long for this as a pastor. I long for this as a husband. I long for this as a father. Gentleness of the strong. That's a pretty scandalous person right there. It's controlled and tempered strength. It's the absence of a disposition to assert personal rights. Just humility and gentleness alone would make for a pretty beautiful people, wouldn't it? Make for a pretty beautiful marriage, wouldn't it? Make for a pretty beautiful family. The third thing is walk with all patience. Patience is long-suffering with aggravating people. It's being honest. Patience is long-suffering with aggravating people. Keep your finger there in Ephesians and flip over to Psalm 119. I just like for you to see this. You don't have to see it. It's not like an essential <clears throat> eye-opening passage. It just surprised me. And since we're not in a hurry and we're walking at walking pace, we've got time to look at it. <clears throat> I've been reading through Psalm with my family, the book of Psalms, and uh, we just finished up Psalm 119 this last week. And in preparing for this message, you know, I've got humility, gentleness, patience, and and forbearance on my mind. And I read a verse in, in Psalm 119 that just really stuck, just stood out to me and surprised me. Psalm 119, verse 158. The psalmist says, <clears throat> I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. I read that and I said, man, that psalmist was crazy honest. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I get disgusted and aggravated with people sometimes. I mean, seriously, let's be honest. Do people aggravate you sometimes? Well, you're not, from, you're not foreign 
There's nothing new under the sun. That's part of walking with people is that they're going to disgust you and they're going to aggravate you at times. And to walk in oneness, we walk with patience with one another. And the next thing that's tied to it is we walk bearing with one another in love. Go back to Ephesians. Bearing with one another in love. Actually, turn over to Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to put this in perspective for you. Romans chapter 5. As I read this, and I read even the psalmist saying, man, I just get so disgusted with the faithless. And I'm honest with myself, I get really aggravated and disgusted with faithlessness too. The Lord thankfully took me to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, there those two sweet words are again, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still aggravating and disgusting Christ died for us. Man, when I read this, I thought, yeah, God, I want to be patient with with those that are aggravating. And I want to be bearing with one another in love, those people that are disgusting. And then the Lord thankfully took me to the place where, you mean like you are? You mean like I have been, have been and are with you, Ben McGraw? I'm like, oh, yeah, like that. Like that. These four things gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with one another in love, forbearance, at walking pace, in daily, mundane, seemingly insignificant, seemingly unimportant moments, are sure to put the nature of God on display. That's what oneness does. They are sure to let the world know and believe that God sent the Son. When a people really walks in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, then the world will know that God loves his people as God loves his own Son. Man, this is how to dance. Paul's teaching people with left feet to know how to dance. Now, there's three important considerations that I want to share with you as we seek to do this and be this kind of people. First of all, is to know that sometimes you're extending humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And sometimes you require all the above. The mistake that you make and the mistake that I've seen people make when people have left the church in the last seven years is because they didn't realize that they needed to be forbeared with. (laughs) That's not a good word. That they need to be, somebody need to be patient with them. I'll tell you when you're going to get yourself in a jam when you don't realize that you're not just the extender, but there are times where you're the aggravating one. And there are times where you're the disgusting one. We walk in oneness when we keep that on our mind, that we're not just extending patience with one another and forbearing with one another, but there are times where somebody's got to be patient with me. 
And somebody's got to be bearing with me. Surely you know that you're the aggravating one at times, right? Surely you know that. The second thing to keep in mind is in, from, is, is in verse 3 in Ephesians. Go back to there if you've turned away from it like I have. Ephesians 4, excuse me, verse 3. Paul says, Walk with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This humble, gentle, patient, forbearing walk must be sought eagerly. I confess to you, as I'm reading those things, I'm thinking, man, I just kind of want to do them reluctantly. I'll be patient with folks, I reckon, when they're aggravating. But Paul says to eagerly seek those things, eagerly seek those opportunities to be humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing. This thing that we're doing and as we walk and maintain oneness is not a passive, reactive thing, but it's an intentional, daily thing that is to be pursued. That changes things. Where we are actually in the um, leaning forward position in being gentle. We are leaning forward in humility. We are eager to be patient. You know what that means? If you're going to be eager to be patient, you're going to have people in your lives that you have to be patient with. So don't complain about that. Be thankful for that, knowing that you're that person sometimes. Being eager to bear with one another in love. We are not to be humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing reluctantly. We are to eagerly seek it. And the third thing to keep in mind is that we, as we do these things, must be fueled by worship, knowing that he already earned oneness. When we do these things, when we are gentle, when we are humble, when we are bearing with one another, when we are patient with one another, we're maintaining something that's already been earned. If you get that out of, out of order, then it's no longer worship. But it's worship if you keep it in order. I'm going to read a passage that I read earlier, but I want, to, I want you to listen to the tense and just enjoy the tense. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That is past tense. We as the people of God have got to enjoy that this word here that he uses in verse 3 of chapter 4 is maintain, not earn. If it were earned, if we had to earn oneness, we would all be doomed. Our call is to maintain it. It's sort of like God has placed his people in this mansion. A mansion that we couldn't buy. A mansion that we couldn't build. And he bought it and built it through the work of the cross. And he says, move in. Maintain it. Be gentle walking with one another. Be humble walking with one another. Be patient walking with one another. Bear with one another in love as you maintain this mansion that I earned for you. 
I've shared with a few folks these last couple of weeks that I think uh, right now personally in my personal walk, and I don't do a lot of self-examination because that, that you can have a morbid, morbid focus on your own walk. You know, you're, your walk is relative to everybody else. <laughs> but it's appropriate at times to look at where are you? And I've shared with a few folks that I feel like right now I'm in sort of a spiritual winter. It's not a shipwreck faith. It's not in the ditch. I'm not questioning where I am or who I am or what I'm doing. <laughs> it's just sort of a winter. And I realized I, I think my winter right now is connected to what I'm preaching. I'm preaching on oneness as I'm sitting preaching to a church at our seven and a half year mark with a, a parade of people in my memory and who are connected to my heart who have been part of this people who no longer are. People who've stepped away from oneness. Are people who've moved, moved on to what was just one step in a series of churches. Are people who've, who've walked out on marriages and just aren't even willing to engage the body anymore. Where I'm thinking about the work of Satan over the last seven years, I understand why I'm in a winter now. Because y'all don't know those faces. Some of you do. Those of you who've been here a while, you know those faces and you know that heartache. I've been told before that I take those things personally when people leave the church. And at first I used to kind of think, well, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't take it personally if someone leaves the church. But then I realized, you know what? I'm called to be, take it very personally when a baby's born. People want me to take it very personally when someone's sick and you're praying with them. People want our elders to take things very personally when someone's being married or buried. Yet when someone just walks away from the people of God, don't take it personally. It's very personal because according to our Bibles, we're members of one another. When someone leaves this body because they're unwilling to walk in gentleness and humility and patience, forbearing with one another, my hand walks away. My leg walks away. And it's a heartbreaking thing to see. And this spiritual winter, I think, part in large part, as I'm considering this message this morning, is because I'm realizing that people bail right on the cusp when the gospel is going to be on display. Oftentimes people leave, and I'm, I'm not talking people leaving for theological reasons, because I think that would be like the only reason to leave a church. I'm talking people leaving, the first family that ever left here in seven years left because we went to two services. Never said a word to anybody. I found out later. I finally tracked them down. I just didn't like it because he went to two services. <laughs> it's crazy that the people of God can be treated like the dry cleaners. I'm going to go to a new cleaner. It's very personal because we're members of one another. Because we're supposed to walk in gentleness and humility and patience, forbearing with one another. It's very personal. It's very hard. Realizing that when, when people stick it out and people go the distance with each other, that they're putting oneness on display. How do you think oneness is achieved with a bunch of sinners? It's achieved with a bunch of sinners that go the distance with each other. Relentlessly. Eagerly seeking to walk gently with each other. Eagerly seeking to walk humbly with each other. Eagerly seeking to forbear and be patient with one another. That puts oneness on display. How can a bunch of sinners put a holy God on display when we go the distance with each other? 
man, this is equipping for me. It's encouraging for me. It makes me want to be gentle with you. It makes me want to be patient with you and forbearing with you. Realizing that oneness happens at three miles an hour and oneness happens at the work, or oneness is maintained, excuse me, at the work of gentleness, humility, and patience, and forbearance. I want to be about that. Even if it's only 30 of us, 20 of us, 50 of us, who are part of each other's, part of each other's lives, walking, putting these things on display, scandalously. I'm slowing down. I'm asking y'all to as well. Slow down and be about the meaningful work of oneness. It's too important for us not to. Let me pray. Lord, I hope that you sort this out. I hope and pray that this finds purchase in all of our lives. I hope and pray that you'll give us a view of our pace and that we can just breathe deeply for a few minutes and examine how light and shallow we can potentially engage each other, even our own spouses and our children, families. Lord, I pray in view of what Christ prayed for on the eve of his cross, that we can walk in what was already earned for us, what was already built for us, humbly, gently, patiently, bearing with one another in love. Lord, I pray as a result of that, that we will be a pillar and buttress of the truth in this community. That we will be that for those that walk with us for a period of time and are sent to the far corners, are sent to the middle of the field where the church is weak or non-existent. Lord, give us a view to the pace. Convict us of when Christ showed up. How he walked. How he condescended. Lord, I pray too that we can have a view as we extend patience and forbearance with others. That we can have just real focus on the reality that sometimes we're on the receiving end of those things. Oftentimes. Lord, I pray as a result of those sort of realities that you'll just create in us, make in us, maintain in us a low, humble, gently strong people. Lord, we confess and celebrate as an act of worship that all of this was already achieved and earned through the finished work of the cross. You built the mansion. Christ paid for it. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the call. And live in it well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, in the midst of a passage where Paul is talking about worship. Worship in the wrong direction. He's talking about idolatry. He mentions uh, communion. 
And um, I want you to pay attention to a word that he uses. Uh, listen for this word, participation. Um, just a couple of verses here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so what does that mean, this participation? We are having a meal. I think it's in light of Ben's comments about eating together and slowing down. Isn't it cool that God says, the way that you will remember your justification, the way that I will remind you is that I'm going to eat a meal with you. And we participate and he participates. The Father brings us to the table, opens our eyes. Jesus makes it possible, and the Spirit clarifies this meal. And we understand it. And we understand it and we're reminded that we are participating in this together, and he is participating with us. And we're eating him. It's this gruesome and yet beautiful thing at the same time. And listen to this next verse. Because there is one bread, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of one bread. And so here is our reminder, again, that we eat one meal together. And he gave us this meal to remind us of this oneness. How are we one? Him. And so we'll eat together. One bread, many of us, we're one. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this meal. Thank you for atonement. For your body that's broken and your blood spilled out for your cross. We know that there is no way we can be one without body and blood. Atonement. And we proclaim this. This salvation until you come back. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I was thinking about a couple of my idols that I like to pull out and worship. One is efficiency. I really do. I think that's why I like the iPhone so much. I said love. That's a lowercase l. Not like I love my wife or children, but... Um, I think because you can just get so much done. To me, that's, man, I'm so practical and pragmatic that I can worship that idol too. And if it works, man, that's what I want, you know, because it multiplies me and I can just get so much done all at once. And I'm realizing that's kind of a 70 mile an hour pace. I'm not going to throw my iPhone in the toilet. Um, but I, I may turn it off for periods. And I, it was sort of a weird thing for me when I got up this morning and I didn't have Facebook to go check. I'm not saying everybody get off Facebook either, but I'm saying for me, that's where I found myself drawn to these soundbites. What's going on in people's lives? Okay, I spent three minutes finding out what's going on in people's lives. Now I'm on to this, that's, that's, that. Everything's a task. Before long, people can become tasks. People can become tasks. We can work, worship the idol of... Efficiency and pragmatism so much so that we just begin to see other ch others as just the little blocks that you check in your daytime. Okay, done, done, done. Spend time with kids, done. 
Spend time with my wife. Done. You see how ridiculous that is? Relationships are not practical. Church isn't practical. It's not efficient either. It better not be. Because oneness happens at an inefficient pace. Walking pace. It's slow. I'm encouraging you. I'm not saying everybody go get off Facebook or throw your iPhones away. Search the Lord's will for you and your family to discern, Lord, what do you want us to do so that we're walking at oneness pace? Little things that this yesterday, or typically I come into a Sunday morning with my notes all printed out on my computer. And man, all week long, I'm working on my computer hours. And I come in with my final and I, I make some notes on it. But I wrote them out yesterday. I wrote my notes, which I, 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 can't, I can't even read my own writing. <laughs> I'm so accustomed to typing. I can't, so I had to slow down to the point. It was so weird. My cat, y'all may not even believe that I have a cat because I consider them little pagans. <laughs> I have a little pagan that when I call the cat, he won't come to me. But when I don't want anything to do with him, that's when he comes and plops right on top of me. I have cat prints on top of the front page of my sermon notes because he came and walked on my work as I'm sitting there working. Inefficient. But this sermon invaded me more than I think any of the previous have. I'm just talking me, practically, personally. So maybe journal. Maybe write on the greatness of God. I don't think the psalmist had word processing. In fact, it would have been very cumbersome to write down their psalms. Let's do something cumbersome. Don't be driven by efficiency. Do something cumbersome. Be involved in each other's lives. Drink coffee if you don't drink coffee. Keep Starbucks busy. Spend time up there talking with folks. You know, getting to know people. Eat food with each other. I don't care. I'm too busy. That's what oneness, that's oneness pace. That's what we've got to do. We've got to slow down. To walk in these things. These things don't happen. Gentleness, patience, humility, bearing with one or they don't happen at 70. We just move on because they're all so inefficient. I encourage you, just pray through whatever God has for you, whatever he intends for you. And uh, maybe go camping. You know, you get to know people camping. So don't do it on a Sunday because then, you know, if you miss church, you won't go to heaven. So... <laughs> I'm joking. Let me, uh, y'all stand and I'll dismiss this. Hopefully y'all know I'm joking. Some people, some people know I got to go. I got to get off Facebook. I throw my phone away. I can never miss church again. I got those things down. All right, let's pray. God, you are so good. We love you so much. So thankful for the finished work of building the mansion. We count it finished. We count it amazing, the grandeur and splendor of the oneness that you've achieved vertically as we are reconciled with you and horizontally as we are reconciled with the most unlikely bunch of folks makes us marvel. Lord, we just want to walk in what you've already done. We just want to obey and be and do and be inefficient and just enjoy and engage one another as we engage you. So thankful for this journey together through John, John 17 and this snapshot in Ephesians Uh, We love you, Lord. We're thankful for the finished work of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great day.